My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you again for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. This one, I wasn't sure I was going to get to do. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, I have a good friend of mine on the podcast with me today. Uh, We have had a whirlwind of a fall and winter on stage. Um, And... Uh, that, that's I, I was, an understatement. That is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all been great. It's all been amazing. Yes. Um, so my friends and listeners, this is a good friend who works in the community theater with me, Patrick Kossel. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Aaron. Thank you so much for bringing me on the show. Oh, I'm, man. Ex- I'm excited. I feel like, I feel like, like as Steve Martin said when he saw his name in the phone book, I am somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah this is great. you are somebody but honestly <laughs> like getting to know you over the last year and doing shows with you and everything um you were eddie in my rocky horror picture show yeah. you and i did uh this great uh thing all together now which was you know which was a, a lot of fun mm-hmm. a global event frankly because it was streaming yep. everywhere and done in thousands of different venues and then uh you also just did uh, a christmas carol radio play yeah. And and I understand that had a great turnout. I mean it did, yeah. It, I mean so, it, it it was yeah. interesting to do the Christmas Carol because I mean I don't know because I did uh It's a Wonderful Life last year by Tom Landry. I think it's Tom Landry, right? Who wrote mm-hmm. those because he did 39 steps that you directed. Yep. And yep. uh I don't I because we didn't do uh It's a Wonderful Life with a live audience, and this year we did with a Christmas Carol. So oh, so right. it was kind of neat because as soon as we came out on stage, it was like okay. There's not going to be any real open here. As soon as you walk out there, you're in character. Right, right. So there was yeah. a lot of, I mean, immediately you were interacting with the audience. So it was, it was really neat. It was really neat. But I think we could talk about the the commercial too, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. God, yes. what is wrong with me? Okay. So, yeah, Patrick and I also got to do a... Um, there is a mobile game called The Walking Dead Survivors. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe it is a Chinese company who put it together, but you can get it on the app store or the, you know, the Android store right now. And we were featured <laughs> as, <laughs> as traveling salesmen, traveling vacuum cleaner salesmen <laughs> in a zombie apocalyptic world that had just begun. And and it's my understanding, it's like a 10 second clip, but it ran Mm. on their social media for a little while. And I never heard of it. I never saw it. But um, the guy who filmed it just sent it to me the other day. He's like, yeah, it's been out there. (laughs) And apparently it has because people have come up to me and said, why didn't you tell me about this? Because we didn't know. Exactly. But but yeah, so uh, I don't know how many homes we've been seen in. I don't know how many times people have skipped our faces. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Get bad. Keep going. Don't care if you killed a zombie with a vacuum cleaner. Yep. No. No. which i did you um did. But, <laughs> but, uh, another reason i'm having you on the show patrick is you are also a fellow podcaster you I have am. you have the show 307 rpg and uh for those of you who are tabletop gamers or like role-playing games these guys have played all of them 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and every week they have a new show in which they talk about like a different uh, a change to a rule set or like a new version of a game or something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so yeah, tell me a little bit about that, Patrick. So. 307 RPG, uh, obviously 307 because Wyoming, that's our mm-hmm. area code. So yeah. we are we are Wyoming's premier RPG podcast. That, that's what I, mean. <laughs> it's I think we're probably Wyoming's only RPG podcast. I did a show once in Seattle where they're like, this is the West Coast premiere. <laughs> Then it's been done, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, you're the you're the premier. <laughs> we are the premier. Uh, yeah, so it's a, you know me and a couple friends, and we we just talk about role playing games. We talk about new games that are coming out. Like you said, we talk about changes. But primarily, we talk a lot about Dungeons and Dragons. But that isn't our main focus. A lot of our rule stuff is definitely Dungeons and Dragons focused. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. any changes to D and D, and and then we talk about like different games that are coming out. Like we just did a show on a game called Monster of the Week, which made me think Ooh. of you and your boys. Because I think your kids will keep this game up. It's a lot of fun. Uh, very simple to play. Very simple to create characters. And we did, you know, we talked about like the game itself. And then we did a whole episode where we just built a character. And so we could show people wow. what that was like. So yeah, okay. a lot of fun. Yeah, because for those of you that haven't ever done that before, that that can be like a whole session in its own. Is just Absolutely. building your character for for gameplay. Yep. Yep. So we do stuff like that. And, and a lot of times it's, I mean, we weren't getting really deep into stuff. And I think that's going to change as we move into the new year. Uh, a lot of it was like first look at, at different mm-hmm. games, especially stuff that was on Kickstarter because we, we back a lot of stuff on Kickstarter. Okay. It's, yep. been, it's been fun. We've, you know, we've been able to get in touch with a lot of writers who work for these, you know, some big game companies. Some oh, small game right. Companies. Yeah. Producers, artists. I mean, we've ran the gamut on, on people that have, have been willing to come in and talk to us. It's been a lot of fun. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. I think we're about to about to release episode 160. Woo! Jeez. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's like I don't <laughs> even I think we're at 25 now. So okay, yeah, that's a that's a lot. Um it is. Now there was something you were gonna do with our a local community theater that kind of fizzled out might still be on the back burner might still be in the plan but i thought it was such a cool idea and it was like yeah. a, a live session of a tabletop game yes yes so, for an so, audience to watch actually <laughs> the goal was to have the audience interact oh so, nice uh, yeah okay. So as I was going to DM it because for my group I'm I'm the 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 always DM and so my my intent was is to have I was going to have two like of my group of 307 RPG the actually my two co-hosts and then two brand new players so people who had never okay. played D and D before, okay. and oh, but and, and those of you that don't know, DM is dungeon master, kind of right, like the, right. the the MC. They don't necessarily play; they play a lot of the the characters yes. that the that the uh, you know the fighters or combatants are you know meeting the, on their the journey. bad yeah. guys or yeah. or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, the NPCs, lo- as it were. Yes. And it means I have a lot of conversations with myself and my players love it when I do. <laughs> However, um, so the intent was is to host this game, right? At, on hmm. the stage at the Carriage House Theater and like bring the audience in, have the audience interact, like maybe the, the players make a roll and then give the audience a chance to allow them to re-roll it. Oh, so maybe they failed at something and the audience really wanted to see them succeed. So mm-hmm. the player could say, what do you think? Should I re-roll? And if so, they would re-roll it. Now, all of this, of course, is based, the idea came from the popularity of the huge Dungeons and Dragons stream Critical Role. Which oh, is yeah, okay. Massive, right? And of course, it's all voice actors. And Nolan Lemires, who's one of the co-hosts of 307RPG, him and I were talking one day. We thought it would be really neat to get a group of people who are involved in the community theater here in Sheridan and play a role-playing game. I thought D&D because it's the easiest. Oh, yeah. Other games that, frankly, would lend themselves so much better to a group of thespians sitting at a table. <laughs> right. I mean, there really are. And, and if you want to check them out, uh, they came from uh, Beneath the Sea and they came from Beyond the Grave. Oh yeah, you were telling me about yes, those. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Oh god. Oh yes. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, definitely have to play those sometime. I'm yes, way we, we do. So mm-hmm. that was that was the goal. Uh, a couple of players were fizzled out. They got a little nervous, which I understand, <laughs> especially when it's your first time. I I hope the hope is is that we can still do it, and mm-hmm. if so, it'll be done this spring. So that'll be amazing. That'll we'll be amazing. See. Well, let me know because I think my my spring is pretty free except for this show. So, yeah, that's kind of where my spring's at, except for my show. So (laughs) there we go. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the episode here today. I have been so 
so, so excited to talk about this. I, I'm nervous. Uh, oh, you shouldn't uh, be. This I've, is so I've listened great. to your show enough to know that <laughs> sometimes you get some of the most obscure topics. And I'm just like, how did he get that one? So oh, but I always learn something. So this is great. This is great. Okay. So talking about when you're starting a tabletop game and designing characters and uh -huh. what goes into effective character making is something that we as actors also do Absolutely. in bringing something to the stage. We know the stakes we're in. We know kind of the, uh, the things we have to do to effectively get what we need out of a performance. So I guess, you know, I usually start this with a question and I'll ask you this, Patrick, what is a performance that you've seen that has stuck with you? Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming you mean on stage, right? Yeah, yeah, like a stage performance. Like or, or really, stage. I mean, just anything, but but like something that's so compelling. It's like, it's it, it's unbelievable to forget how somebody might have done what they did. <laughs> somebody like Christian Bale, who will like uh -huh. lose a ton oh, of weight. Yeah, right, 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 right. Or, or right. you know, um, like learn how to have a lazy eye or something like that, mm -hmm. you know? Wait, so, you can learn how to do that? He did that. Christian Holy Bale cat. did that. He did that for the <laughs> big short. Because the oh guy my he gosh. in real life has a lazy eye. So he learned how because to do he's that. He's incredible. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to kick myself, Aaron, because I guarantee you, as soon as we're done, I'm going to think of something. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I can always think about, like, I think about my favorite movies. And uh, I mean, anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, right? And, oh, yeah. And these, okay. These movies play on rotation in my house. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> and even then, you know, actually, oh, my gosh, uh, Christopher Lee. Oh, his his portrayal of Saruman of Saruman is amazing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he wanted to be Gandalf. Yeah. Yeah. And he was very upset that he mm -hmm. wasn't able to be Gandalf. He actually almost denied being in the Hobbit films, too. Oh, wow. uh, because of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and, and frankly, anything Christopher Lee touches, mm -hmm. the guy was amazing. Actually, right. I've got it, Aaron. Okay. I know what it is. Bella Lugosi is Dracula. Oh, now we're, yeah, we're going to yeah, go, yeah. we're going to go back. We're going to go back to one. I was like yep. 17, 18 years old. So 91, 92. The mm -hmm. first time I was really kind of finding my way in theater, but also yeah. goth, the goth movement had come to Alaska very late as things do. <laughs> and, and I finally sat down with this idea, uh, you know, having fallen in love with vampires and really watched Bella Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula. Yeah, and there was something okay. about the way his the, he held his fingers and like he deliberately did his fingers a certain way to portray that character. And to me, that was the moment where I was like, oh my gosh. And I think at that moment I was I was okay with saying, okay, I'm okay as a heterosexual male saying that I find another guy attractive. Right, right. That's a and good looking was, sexual being that yes, is compelling. Yes, yep. the way he portrayed yep. that character. I mean, it has stuck with me yep. to this day. There you go. Yep. Okay. Okay. I have one. I, I, right before I left Seattle in 2008, I saw a production of a streetcar named desire mm -hmm. and uh, they were actors that I think some of them had come in from out of town. Some of them were local, but I had to look it up today because a woman who played Blanche Dubois, I had never seen a Blanche. I hadn't even seen the movie at that point. So I didn't know how good Vivian Lee was, God. but that was one of those moments where you see an iconic character and that one, I was like, the way she made you feel pity and sorrow and shame for her all at once, I was just like, I can't stop watching this person. And I looked wow. her up. Her name was Angela K. Pierce. So Angela, if you're out there, kudos. That was an amazing <laughs> performance. And then I, I looked up her resume today and I saw that she did it on Broadway, but she was an understudy. And oh my gosh, <laughs> which is amazing that right now uh, we're recording this on uh, December 23rd, and there is such a buzz right now on Broadway about the head of the Broadway League saying something really nasty about understudies and swings. And everybody, oh, really? oh yeah, that's the worst thing you can do because uh, I'm sorry, don't actors like to speak up? So, <laughs> so yeah said this said this nasty thing about you know understudies and everything and and now all the actors are like uh how about you turn in your resignation later oh <laughs> uh, so yeah anyway anyway so so anyway back to like great performances i gotta bring it down for just a second because at the beginning of this month we did lose stephen sondheim we did 
And then a week later, we lost another good one. Sir Anthony Schur, the renowned actor of the British stage, died on December 2nd, 2021, after a private battle with cancer. He left behind his husband, Gregory Doran, who was the artistic director for the Royal Shakespeare Company, for whom Sir Anthony, known to his friends as Tony, performed in many productions. You, uh, do you know do you know Anthony Schur? Okay. All right. This is going to be great then. I mean, when we think of the great Shakespearean actors, uh, we can rattle off names like Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, and more recently Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch. They've right. all given outstanding performances and become directly associated with Shakespeare because of those. Right. So if you're talking about great Shakespearean actors, you could even go back to uh, as far as to discuss Rick- Richard Burbage, who lived in Shakespeare's time, or David Garrick in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And of course, hovering over everyone as far as Shakespearean performers go, you would be completely remiss to omit Laurence Olivier. Fair, yeah. I mean, Olivia reigned as the Shakespearean actor for years due to his multitude of prolific performances, both on stage and screen. His screen performances are still the standard against which many future performances have been judged. And Olivier is still admired for his screen performances of Hamlet, Henry V, and Richard III. But mention Antony Schur. And like you, not many will have any idea who he is. Right. And what's unfortunate about that is that he played in so many roles on stage to such outstanding acclaim, mainly on the British stage. But he has had more than his share of leading Shakespearean roles, including Prospero, Macbeth, and King Lear. But he will forever be known for one role, which still goes down as one of the greatest performances in RSC history. (laughs) I want to know what it is. Okay, there we go. Tony joined the RSC in 1982, and that year he played the fool opposite Michael Gambon's King Lear. So those of you familiar with the Harry Potter movies, he was Dumbledore for like the, the latter half of that. Right, right. Michael Gambon. He was, so Tony was the fool to Gambon's King Lear. Okay. Okay. Throughout his career, Tony was always known to be quite athletic and physically expressive with his roles. However, on one night in November, the then 34-year-old Tony heard a snap and immediately his leg went limp. As he recalls it, he could not imagine what, had th- what would have thrown him to the floor like that, and he must have been in shock. But as was described to him later, his Achilles tendon snapped in two and could be seen, quote, running up the back of his leg like a Venetian blind. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. Tony had to take six months to recover and in that time was only able to walk with crutches. So here's a quote. With his leg in a cast, Schur hobbled on crutches. He sketched and painted, began psychoanalysis and wondered what his next role might be. He learned how much he enjoyed seclusion. At the same time, he discovered what a different world the cripple was forced to inhabit. Throughout the winter, the skies grew grayer and grayer, but in retrospect, it seemed all of these events were preordained. Schur was resting up to play his most demanding performance yet. After the six-month recovery period, Tony returned to the stage in the role of the fool, but also in the title role of Moliere's Tartuffe. Now, since RSC is a repertory company with several performance venues, their actors get quite a bit of stage time during the contracts. Now, while he's at dinner one night with a friend, Tony was approached by Trevor Nunn, the artistic director of the RSC at the time. Now, Tony had just started with RSC before his accident, so he never really got a chance to meet Trevor Nunn properly. It was a bit like meeting a living legend. <laughs> as, as Trevor Nunn has become like one of the most prolific theater artists in, in history. And as Tony described him, he was the RSC. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So like <laughs> he, he, he just set the balls in motion. Like he'd come up with an idea and go, go make it happen. So the two of them discussed Tony's production of Tartuffe and Nunn was very complimentary of the production and Tony's performance. Soon, Trevor Nunn interrupted Tony mid-sentence. And here's, here's an account of what, uh, what happened. So Tony's talking. Trevor Nunn just goes, you really ought to play Richard III soon. Oh, well, that would be nice. I looked up at him, hopefully. He smiles politely, a touch of enigma, and retreats, disappearing into the smoky, gossipy crowd. 
That's, that's just a beautiful description. A touch of enigma. Just this godlike figure. Comes right? down and goes, I loved your play. Let's talk about your play. You should be Richard III. Oh, okay. Bye. Oh. <laughs> what? That's when you look at your. That's when you look at your spouse and go, "What the hell was that?" <laughs> Please pinch me. Please yeah, pinch. Me. Exactly. <laughs> From that moment on. Tony was thrilled and haunted by the prospect of playing his first lead Shakespearean role for RSC. It's not something that just gets handed to anyone. And this role to boot, what an honor. Yeah. All right. Now, in order to understand Tony's excitement and trepidation, let's, let's look at the play and the character of Richard III for just a moment. One of Shakespeare's history plays about the war for the crown of England between the houses of York and Lancaster, Richard III has also become one of the Bard's most celebrated tragedies. As you may recall, he's not actually the king at the beginning of his play. His brother Edward IV has just been crowned, but Richard sees the opportunity to slither his way into the role of king. Through many plots and treacheries, Richard is able to have anyone else in succession before him murdered mm. <laughs> so that he is As the, one does. Right. So he is the natural heir to the throne. He is an absolutely unrepentant killer and a ruthless politician. Now... A lot of this may come from the fact that he feels like he is an absolute outsider, but this is mainly due to his physical deformity. Shakespeare describes him as a, quote, hunchback, which basically means that he walked hunching forward. But the bard also described him as having a limp and a withered arm. Well, there may not have been the medical terminology at the time to accurately describe this, analyses of the actual Richard's bones, which were uncovered in 2012. Do you remember that? I think I do, yeah. Like, I, I can't remember. I think yeah. they were, like, demolishing a, a, a parking garage or an apartment complex or something. Yes, and then, yes, And then they're like, yes. uh, we, we found these bones. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> right? So when they found those, they showed that the king did have a serious case of scoliosis. Now, this does not necessarily produce the hump that Shakespeare might have implied, but this is what we have to go on. Nonetheless... Shakespeare did mean for Richard to be somewhat looked down upon because of his birth defect, as though it was just part of the natural order to consider Richard as somewhat lesser than. His okay. own mother has some of the worst things to say about him in Act 1, Scene 2, calling him, quote, an elvish marked abortive rooting hog. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm going to call my son that now. There you go. <laughs> He's going to love it. Oh, you elvish mark of border brooding hug. Hug. Um, let's see. I think, I think it's Lady Anne who calls him a lump of foul deformity. Oh, jeez. And, and even in his famous opening lines of the play, now is the winter of our discontent. Richard mentions how he feels half-formed, reviled in society, and that dogs bark at him just based on his appearance. Good. <laughs> right? <laughs> but in the same speech, Richard also rants that he has proven himself to be just as apt to be respected and even to rule. So perhaps his revenge is not only on the crown, but on the world itself. Ah. Like, he's won wars. He's a warrior. We have yes. to remember he yes. fought. And, and and survived, like he, he contributed. So it couldn't have been mm -hmm. that much of a deformity that he didn't figure out how to get around it. I just, now, I, I, have, I have visions of like people bringing like half wounded warriors. All right, sir, stab him. Yay, you win that fight. <laughs> that's, that's, it, that's it. It's a pity kill. It's a pity yeah, kill. it's a pity kill. Yeah, yeah, I mean, how many did he get? I don't know. We lost uh, <laughs> He just sat there on his horse. I'm a horse, a horse. Anyway. Now, Tony, Tony sure could relate to a lot of this himself. Throughout most of his life, Tony never stood above five foot six. Oh. He kept himself in good shape, but this made him rather lean. But underneath the skin, Tony had a lot that kept him on the outside as well. Now, while most of his peers knew him as British, he was actually from South Africa and had emigrated in 1968. His grandparents had actually fled to Cape Town from Lithuania in the 1890s due to persecution of their Jewish heritage. Okay. So another reason he felt out of the norm. Yeah, he absolutely. He was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And in addition, his parents were quite well off in Cape Town. So Tony was rather insulated from the ugliness of apartheid. And his family did take full advantage of servants and racial disparity. Okay. 
and he uh-huh. knew it. Yeah? Like he kind of knew it. He's like, something's off. But mostly, Tony knew from his teenage years that he was a gay man and right. knew that his privileged life in South Africa was not his future. Thus, after finishing his mandatory year in the South African military, Tony moved to London to pursue a career in acting. His subscription to a magazine called Plays and Players set a fire in him. Like just he, I, I just out of out of the blue. Very similar to, you know, how some people find themselves in tabletop gaming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, oh absolutely. wow, this is I can do this and obsess this over is this a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, being a gay man in England in the late 60s was difficult as gay men could not be public about their sexual preference. Right. So let's just do a recap. A small gay Jewish man hiding his identity about being from the upper crust of South Africa. He even cast off his South African accent for a British accent. And for quite some time told everybody that he was born in the UK. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Right? Right? Like, like, it, it, I don't see it as like a self-hatred. It's more it, but like it, a, but it, um, chameleon-ish? I mean, it's yeah. like... I don't know if it's self self preservation. I don't even think it's self denial. I think it's self awareness, and like yeah. I just don't want to have to deal with how people feel about that. I want them to see me that all of those things were not something I had control right. over. Right. Right. You know. And and yeah. So that's anyway. that's actually really sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when it was presented to Tony to play Richard the Third in the 1984 season, the planets seemed to be aligning. <laughs> <laughs> now we've both just done several things and and, and, and mm-hmm. i don't know how much you put into a role but i'm not necessarily an actor who practices the method like mm-hmm. i don't necessarily need to see what it's like to literally be another person and live in that person's circumstances sure however i do appreciate being able to amplify what characteristics that i that i have that would lend themselves to a character sure I mean, Agreed? Yeah, absolutely. So frankly, I like to start with me first, right? Mm -hmm. That's more or less what Tony did. (laughs) Oh. He approached the creation of Richard III with some incredible introspection thanks to his psychoanalysis. And at this point, I'd like to recommend to anyone listening that Tony's full process for this uh, is mapped out in his book, Year of the King, An Actor's Diary and Sketchbook. And that's uh, Anthony, A-N-T-O-N-Y, Sure S-H-E-R. It's a primary source okay. for this episode and a brilliantly detailed play-by-play by how Tony created this role. So there were a few looming obstacles that stood out in front of him. First, how is he going to portray this character's physicality? What with the deformity being so fundamental to Richard's character? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, you can do a lot with costume and makeup, but... I mean, if all went well, he would be playing this character for an extended period of time, months, if not years. Right. So, like, you know, I mean, even even sometimes when you have to do a role that requires you to, you know, maybe have a limp or, like, hunch over a little bit, like, it takes a toll on your body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he needed to make sure that this wasn't going to be his last role. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that whatever he did on stage would not do lasting damage to his own physical well-being. Right, right. I mean, it's it's not easy to crunch oneself over to give the appearance of serious spinal deformity. And exactly. Now, actors have found ways to do this without damaging themselves permanently. In 1980, there was another famous production of this in which Alan Howard had played Richard... And he would alternate which leg he would limp on for each performance. Okay. So it it, it worked in that way. Like, you know, he was balancing it. Balancing but, it. Right, right. Yeah, right. Now, the next challenge for Tony would be to distinguish the performance from those that have gone before. Namely, he would obviously be compared to the performance immortalized on screen by Laurence Olivier. Now, yes. I, I watched that. Uh, in in preparation for this episode and then comparing this to Tony's performance, I went, okay, okay. I see why that was the thing. Cause like Olivier directed that he had this castle built in the studio. I mean, it was a huge movie. <laughs> so like, yeah, I mean, he was hovering over everything. Yeah. Oh, and um, 
you know, maybe similarly to how you might have felt coming on this show the day of and me going, <laughs> oh, please, please help me with my show. In fact, when Tony accepted the part, director Bill Alexander was blatantly honest with Tony that he was being offered the part because Ian McKellen and Alan Howard were both unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sorry. You're the third choice here, pal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the most daunting task, well, I guess I would say this is a challenge for any actor taking on a part that has been played countless times before would be to create a version that stood out from all the others and would bring new light and dimension that may not have been seen before and to be remembered for doing it, quote, to initiate a new tradition for future players of the Crooked Back King. Yeah. Right? That makes sense to me. Like, sure, we've sure. talked about this. You and I were into the woods last year and, mm -hmm. you know, you 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 were the baker in that production and, right. and just amazing. Great performance. Great well, performance. I mean, and I, I that did... That a lot. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then I was the big bad wolf in that. And... Yep. Uh, Which was... You know, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember watching you do the big bag of wolf, and I, and I thought I actually went home and told my wife. So I think I want to take acting lessons from Aaron, because <laughs> I was, I mean, this is a part that's like it's it's so small, but yet it's so important to the show, right? And you brought so much oozy, slimy, jerky. <laughs> This is a okay. pedophile on stage. You were just so yep. good. That, that, <laughs> Sorry, and, and, well, that that was so interesting for me because here's my muse. And I might have told you this. You know, we were doing rehearsals for it and I was just trying to find the part and feel it and everything. And like I saw Johnny Depp play it in the movie. Uh -huh. And I'm like, you know, he was he came off as like they they even put him in the costume of like a, a, a zoot suit, uh, yep. you know, 30s gangster and you know, there was just a mystique to him. Like, eh, you know, I know that you're bad, but I'm kind of interested in it. And I'm driving around one day, uh, my phone on shuffle, playing music through my car, and Billy Idol's Eyes Without a Face comes on. Okay, great song. It's a great song. And you hear mm -hmm. this guy who's like, I'm all out of hope. I don't know where to go. I just keep seeing your face. And then the second half of the song gets really dark and scary. Stalkerish, <laughs> as eighties music does. <laughs> and I go to the director the next day, and I'm like, "I'm playing him as Billy Idol in this song." <laughs> She's like, "Okay, let's try that." <laughs> that's where it came from, and I don't know why it worked. And 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 I'm like, "No, no, no, no! I know everybody else is medieval, but I'm going to be wearing sneakers and a leather jacket." I wore your leather jacket as yeah, I remember. And at no point, at no point, I don't think anybody ever thought, boy, Aaron just looks out of place. Nobody <laughs> ever said that. It just worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, uh, you know, your baker, too, on, on the same uh, token is like, you know, uh, uh, I think this last couple years in, in theater has been really great. Because we've been able to re-establish what we're what we're able to cast in things. You know, I you had tried out for that a couple times before, and then this time you got it. And I I hate to say it this way, but it feels like there was something almost cultural that made auditors underestimate you. So, and I think you're right. And, and I know what you're saying. So for those of you, Aaron's, the topic Aaron's dance, dancing around for is, <laughs> I am a fat man. <laughs> and when you look at, at people who are heavy, especially people who are obese, and, and, and you think about the roles like that, and we've had this conversation um, yeah. in regards to Rocky Horror. Is it okay mm -hmm. for a fat person to play this part? And the answer should always be yes. But yeah. we all know that, that that is different. Now, I will say, when I first auditioned for Into the Woods, Mm -hmm. I was so nervous. I think I actually auditioned for the wolf part. I was oh. so nervous. Like I had just decided to get back in the theater because I did catch me with, uh, catch me if you can. Uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, COVID shut us down and then yep. we re-auditioned. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I auditioned, Aaron called me and she's like, I need you to come back. Mm -hmm. And I went back and it was Aaron and Ryan and Jen Reed, who's been on your show. And I was ready at that point, yeah. I knew what I needed to do. And I mm -hmm. did it. And Aaron looked at me and she said, had you done that from day one, no one else would have been my baker. Oh, bang. And there's a, there's this level of comfort in casting the people, you know, I was completely new. 
Yeah. I just did a, a couple of bit parts in Catch Me If You Can and then jumping into something like Into the Woods. Right. A show that I did not like at the time. Right. To be completely <laughs> honest. Now it's, I keep saying, this is the dream role I never knew I had. Yep. Um, but anyway. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, there we go. I mean, it's finding what is in you that makes mm-hmm. you confident about playing this role. So here we go. Back into Tony's uh, and, and I'm going to oh, go, go back to Tony real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Tony was in The Hobbit. <gasps> That's right. He was. He plays, he plays uh, Thorin's father. Yes, he did. And that was a deleted scene, though, wasn't it? It was. So you have to watch yeah. the extended edition of The Desolation yep. of Smog. Yep. He plays oh, Thorin. That's right. That's right. I did read that as I was doing research for this. So now you can put a name to the <laughs> yes. face. Yes, All right. exactly. Or a face to the name. That'll yeah, work. now All I right. know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, perfect. So let's start with the physical, mainly the deformity. Mm-hmm. So after he'd been offered the part and had been thinking about it for over a year, Tony realized two things about the character. One was that his appearance should, quote, inspire pity and terror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The next was that Richard should be the most active person on stage. And here's a quote from Tony. I decided he should have still have a tremendous energy. It's a dark energy. It's a dangerous energy. But my Goodness, it's a powerful energy. Ah. And he also had this to say about the formation of the character. Quote, you can find any character by watching animals. So two images continued to appear in Tony's psyche as he thought about what animal or animals Richard could be. First and foremost, he thought about the hump. But again, he did not actually want this to be a detriment to the character, but rather something he could use to his advantage. He thought that the hump must be something powerful and full of muscle, which often brought the image of a bull to his mind. Ooh. With the big hump. Yeah, on, yeah. You know, and it's just, it's powerful. And yeah. he would sketch bulls in his diary quite often. But another image that kept coming to him, and it, might, and it came right from Shakespeare's text, that of a, quote, bottled spider, something too venomous, okay. too allowed to be free. And from the earliest thoughts that Tony had about Richard, he imagined him walking on crutches, the kinds that strap around the forearms for the user to lean Mm -hmm. forward on. Right, right. Now, this would imply that Tony's Richard would have legs that have possibly gone into something of a state of disuse. This also would imply that his torso and arms have incredible strength. Strength. So right. now you have this image of a bull charging a bull at you. And, yeah. and, a, and a spider at the same time because he's yes. got these incredibly long legs. And we'll come back to the crutches a little bit later, but it was the image of this that Tony's Richard came to be known as, the bottled spider. Ah. So when they refer to Tony's Richard, it's the bottled and spider. A, yes. Yeah. So to continue to study deformities, Tony had friends who worked in the medical field who would get him access to facilities that help people with extreme physical disabilities. Like I said, Tony did not feel that Richard's deformities could hinder him, but rather his Richard had figured out how to use them to make himself stronger. One of the things he found while visiting these facilities was that quite often many physically disabled people would develop incredibly strong grips. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> he, yeah. He translated this even further into his poorly developed lower half and highly strengthened upper half. But one of the best discoveries Tony made was the difference between scoliosis and kyphosis. That's K-Y-P-H-O-S-I-S. Never heard of that. Yep. Now, I'm, I'm no medical expert, so I hope I'm describing this correctly. But both are conditions in which the spine does not curve naturally. Like your spine, right. you know, is supposed to be kind of a little bit of an S, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but more or less straight up and down. Scoliosis is where the spine will curve unnaturally from left to right, and kyphosis right. is where the spine will curve naturally from the front to the back. And it's oh. the latter. Yeah. And it's the latter that's more generally associated with the term hunchback. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, again, when Richard's actual remains were discovered in 2012, it was determined that he had scoliosis, not kyphosis, as is suggested. But Tony played Richard in 1984. And so he made right. this, but he made this connection to kyphosis naturally. <laughs> interesting (laughs) like he studied like in in the book there's this section where he's like you you have to know the difference because if he had scoliosis he'd be slanted slanted off to one side or the other instead of like leaning over which gave him more power for those crutches so at this point most of the problems with physicality have been solved 
Tony's costume would include a large foam hump on his left shoulder, and he would convey himself across the stage on these thick black crutches. And, and the crutches actually became extraordinary props and would elicit fantastic imagery. For example, early in the play, when Richard is wooing Lady Anne, and keep in mind, he is wooing her over the body of her father-in-law, who he killed. <laughs> oh, the audacity of the man. <laughs> he uses the crutches to surround her as she kneels over the grave, much like oh, a spider gathering its prey. Yeah. Oh, it's just, oh God. It almost made the eventual romance something of a foregone conclusion, as though she had been injected with Richard's venom and was slowly submitting to his will. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> At another point, he clasps them like pincers around the neck of Hastings. And that's got to be before, you know, he's beheaded. Throughout the performance, the crutches allowed him to produce silhouettes resembling other creepy crawlies like mantises and cockroaches. Yeah. I mean, moreover, the final costume was black from head to toe with a large gold chain across his chest. And the sleeves of his tunic, though, had long tails that flowed down from his elbows, which is customary for the time, to look like two more spindly legs. Legs, yep. A truly yep. realized arachnid of a man. Oh, it's just, and, and I'll show yes. you some of this before we're done today. Uh, well, I've, I've got I've got pictures on the other screen. This yes, is okay, good. Uh -huh. This yeah. is intense. Yep. Um, oh, hey, do you have Amazon Prime? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, there is an episode that you can watch and see how he maneuvers himself around the stage. Oh, really? Because they filmed a little bit of it. I never was able to find the full version of it, but it's actually Tony going through his process of becoming Richard and learning okay. how to be Richard. And I'll look that up. It's amazing, yeah. Okay, here we go. The crutches also allowed Tony to spring across the stage with extraordinary agility and speed to the point that the audience really forgot what they were looking at. And here's a longer quote. I love this though. In the larger scope of things, Schur's crutches added a dimension and capability to Richard's traditional deformity. With them, violence was ever a hair's breadth away, and life at the court seemed even more precarious than other productions of Richard III. The crutches emphasize Richard's love of acting and his lethal energy, which are always seeking outlets. Moreover, they deceived the onstage audience into believing that Richard was unable to fight. People forgot that he had been victorious in battle. Eventually, we became fascinated by Richard's overcompensating power to act by the way he used motion to close in upon and manipulate the other characters, end quote. Wow. <laughs> right? So just use exactly what you have. They are not assuming that you're going to be anything but a cripple. Right. <laughs> I keep I keep looking at this picture of him, and it's mm -hmm. I mean I've gone between black and white and color, and you everything you're saying I'm watching I'm looking at this picture going I don't know if I want to look at this picture anymore. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's really it's terrifying. Intense, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Now this brings us to how Tony was able to differentiate his Richard from those that came before. Early in his process, Tony had realized that Richard was actually quite funny. <laughs> Tony often pondered that some of the props needed may result in a grisly nervous laugh from the audience here and there. For example, and spoilers for those of you that haven't read the play or seen it, the character Hastings is executed, chop off his head. So for that scene, there were several things to consider because Richard has to be presented with the head. That's how it's written. Like they bring it in and show him. Sure. So if the head is brought in, covered and impaled on a pike, <laughs> it would seem fairly absurd. <laughs> <laughs> I keep bringing it in, it's on the end of a sword. You're like, oh, God, I, I'd laugh. And, you know, stuff like that, stuff like that, could, I mean, it will elicit a laugh from the audience. If it's brought in on a tray, too much like John the Baptist. Sure. Here's a description of Tony's solution. And this is a longer quote, too, but my God, this is great. He felt that the humor would be controllable if he vacillated between polite interest and disinterest. In performance, the effect was striking. Lovell entered, holding the head by its hair, and nonchalantly handed it to Richard. The latter took it heartily, with both hands and without flinching. As the scene progressed, Richard shifted it to one hand, which he rested on his hip. <laughs> then, at the line, what? Think you we are Turks or infidels? 
He threw the head at the Lord Mayor, who caught it and returned it quickly in another toss. <laughs> in a game of hot potato with the head. With the head! <laughs> After the Lord Mayor exited, Richard instructed Buckingham to follow, pitching the head to him, this time as a gesture of playfulness, to see what Buckingham would do. <laughs> Buckingham sent it flying back, and after Buckingham exited, and after the head had been pitched from man to man like a rugby ball, Richard delivered his last lines, tucked it neatly under his arm. One supposed he was taking Hastings' head back to his chamber to put it somewhere on a shelf. End quote. Hey, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Here, catch. <laughs> I mean, he didn't care. He was like, this is just another another thing in my way. And you brought yeah. me it. So kudos. We got yeah. what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and herein uh, lies lives probably the greatest way that Tony's Richard stuck out from anyone prior. This Richard is enjoying himself immensely. That makes him even more evil, doesn't it? Right? Like yeah. if you go if you go back and watch the the Olivier, which is brilliant. Like I mm-hmm. loved his performance of it. It it is very crisp and it's like he's got to get to the next thing. He's got to I mean it's all it's all falling together, but you can't tell if it's something he wants or not, or just feels that it needs to happen. Like it's sure it, it feels like he, you know, he's setting the world right, but it's not like it's affecting his emotional state one way or the other. You know, I'm just knocking another domino out of the way, right? Right. One of the best parts about playing a villain is something that we, as a current contemporary audience, have been somewhat fascinated by as ba- in, in the realm of bad guys as of late. I mean, how many times will we see a new Joker on screen and be fascinated by what this newest rendition of Murderous Madman has to offer? I mean, we've had, like, <laughs> the last 10 years, we've had, like, three major onstage Jokers. Yeah. Or on-screen Jokers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we're yeah, like, yeah. so which one's better? You know, like... They do the same thing with Batman. They do the same thing with James Bond. Sure. It's like, no, they all bring something different. Right. So, I mean, this goes into like the idea of does somebody define a role? Like, you know, when we'll, yeah. go, back to, we'll go back to James Bond, like everybody thought Connery was James Bond and that's it. Sure. But then you have Roger Moore, who's like this handsome, suave, very amorous. Like he's, he's almost unassuming as a spy. Cause you're like, he's, he's, just he's too pretty to be out there doing this stuff. I mean, Connery at least right. was at least a little sinister sometimes. Yeah, little gross. And then you, yeah, <laughs> and then you have Daniel Craig, who is just very flippant but serious, and, and, and so it's like they're just they're they're all the same person. It's just a different way of playing it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, and I and I love. I mean, you made the reference to the Joker, and I think about the Joker for me. Of course, you could always go back to the the television series, but Jack Nicholson. Oh. When I first saw him as the Joker, mm-hmm. I, I was terrified. Right? This was right. this was like holy cow. But you know, and it's like if you think about Lawrence Olivier versus Anthony Sheer, you have this very classic portrayal of Richard, mm-hmm. right? And then you right. have somebody else who's able to take it this way. So then we had Heath Ledger, who made me terrified of the Joker. Right, right. Who made me when I watched that movie, I was like, I'm scared of that bad guy. Mm-hmm. Jack right. Nicholson, you can almost sympathize with. Oh yeah, he fell in a vat of acid, and now he's crazy. Heath Ledger, you were like, what is wrong with this guy? Yeah, we have no and, idea what's wrong with him. Yeah, and it was yeah. terrifying. Mm-hmm. So it's a great example of this, you know, in a modern yeah. day sense of these two different types of characters, and like what you had with here, this classical train, Lawrence Olivier versus Anthony Shear bringing you said comedy and things like that to this part where yeah. you're presenting it in a way that nobody's seen it before. Right. Right. Which is exactly. Awesome. Anyway, I'll shut up. And now. that, and that blew, <laughs> and that blew it all away. Yeah. I mean, Tony absolutely tapped into that basically yeah. n- not even hiding his intentions, but openly prompting them along using the other's actors assumptions about him against them. Oh, I love it. None of them believed this quote, lump of foul deformity, could possibly stage the many coups that he did. Now, here's a description from one review. Sure was incredibly clever. He was brittle without being sinister. There were no hidden depths the audience strained to see into. He was, flat out, a man obsessed with power, a man who wanted to attain the throne as quickly as possible, and a man who wanted to have fun along the way. His athletics and humor were such a contagious combination that the audience started to look for amusement in everything, no matter how heinous the incident. 
Oh and- my goodness. Wow. <laughs> That's when I mean, you know you've delivered a performance. Right. I mean, you know, we could talk about like the 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 uh under the bridge chase in Dark Knight. We're talking about uh-huh. Heath Ledger yeah, and Joker. Yeah. You know, he's he's shooting at the the armored car and everything, and then he pulls out a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all like, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. But another muse that Tony found came from the current events in the UK at the time. And it leads into this like assumption about somebody that might have other intentions. Okay. The current events at the time were about the capture of serial killer Dennis Nilsson in the UK. Do you know anything about this? I, I was he the, the more recent ripper? Well, kind oh, okay. of. Yeah. Okay. But I mean it was it was uh, in the eighties when he finally got caught. Now, I, I from uh, the incredibly popular podcast, My Favorite Murder, their episode 299 dives deep into the Nielsen murders. And, and okay. listeners, I'll, I'll put a link to that show in the description of this episode, but it's really grisly, just a fair warning. <laughs> <laughs> but I will share a little bit about it because how he was caught was just something. And this completely leads into Tony's, Tony's thing about him. Perfect. Now, the neighbors in Nielsen's apartment building complained to the building manager that their sewers kept getting backed up or just having an incredibly foul odor coming from their pipes. The building manager hired, hired Dino Rod, which is kind of like Roto-Rooter, who <laughs> opened, they, uh, they opened a drain cover on one side of the building and pulled out what looked like chunks of animal flesh and small bones, but it effectively oh my cleared, gosh. cleared the sewer system. And there was some concern that the remains were human. Well, duh, we're talking about a serial killer. Now, Nilsson and another tenant found the plumbers outside the building the next day and asked about the source of the sewer blockage. When they were showed some of the remains, Nilsson innocently suggested that it looked like it was leftover Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And he was immediately suspicious to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) that's that that moment where everyone goes (laughs) (laughs) now the plumbers returned the next day and they discovered that the remains had to have come from the top floor apartment which what which belonged to nilsen the the plumbers contacted the authorities and within the next few days nilsen allowed uh, police into his apartment with initial reluctance but then gratitude as they began to find all manner of grisly mutilations throughout his apartment he stated he stated that if they hadn't shown up to arrest him, he would not have been able to stop on his own. Now, upon search, <sighs> the police immediately noticed the odor of decomposing human flesh. When asked where the bodies were, Nilsson pointed to several closets, cabinets, and even under the floorboards where dissected parts of his victims had been stored in plastic bags. <laughs> <laughs> Nilsson boiled parts like the head and hands of his victims, loosening the skin and flesh to a point where he could clean the bones dry. The smaller stuff that he couldn't figure out what to do with, he would either flush down the toilet or wash down the garbage disposal, hence clogging the building's sewage pipes. Oh my God. (laughs) Now, those are just the minor details of this story. Like what he did was just, ugh. I had a hard time listening to that episode, but I, I was bet. I was like, oh, I gotta find I gotta hear this because it relates. Now here's how Tony found inspiration in this. <laughs> it was just how average Nilsson seemed in all the media coverage, despite doing their best to portray him as menacing, like handcuffed in the back seat of police cars or through barred police station windows. Now, through all that, Tony just saw a tall and slender, unassuming man with dark hair and glasses who would be just as easy to pass by on the street as anyone else. He was exceedingly normal. There was absolutely nothing spectacular about his appearance. And yet behind all this, Tony saw the insipidly dark humor of a man who would walk his cute little dog while a severed head would be boiling in a pot in his apartment. I shouldn't be laughing about this. I know, right? But that's just it. That's exactly what he found. He was like, that's the thing. Oh, my God. And I mean, the chicken comment? Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. Tony spent days sketching and reviewing pictures of Nilsson, just fascinated by how no one would have assumed this man could be capable of such malice, just like his Richard III. Wow. (laughs) 
find it in the weirdest places. Now, by the time the play had premiered on Tony's 35th birthday, June 14th, 1984, Tony had truly found his nightmare creature. His Richard, while not necessarily the definitive performance, still stood out from Olivier's witty and scheming Duke of Gloucester and Alan Howard's brooding and limping nobleman. He was in a class all by himself. I mean, the audience was absolutely spellbound. It was hard to like this character, but it was hard to look away. You yeah. didn't want him to do the things he was doing, but you were fascinated watching him do it. This humor combined with the treachery, combined with the physicality, gave audiences exactly what Tony was hoping for, a truly new realization of this character and his capabilities. And let me see, I think, yeah, I'm gonna send you this now. There is a small clip from that uh, show on Amazon. It's, uh, it's from PBS called Uncovered Shakespeare. And if you have Amazon Prime, it's in season three, I wanna say it's episode six. But I'm going to find this here real quick. I'm going to send it to you because it is terrifying. <laughs> so I, I see these pictures of Dennis Nilsson because I have to look, right? And I'm looking oh, right? at this guy and I'm like, wait, if they ever do a movie about this, David Tennant should play him. Right? Right? It, they did. Yeah. And he does. <laughs> yep. There we go. There we go. Okay. So I sent you the thing. If, if you got it up there, just go ahead and watch it. It's like not even a minute long. Pulling it up now. look as he's turning he's showing them his hump just like mm -hmm. daring That's exactly what's going on daring them to look at it wow and just from that one clip you're just seeing him go from the the, uh, the utmost extreme of upstage to downstage in a matter of seconds yeah. on his crutches and and there are times when he just like swoops across the stage and i'm gonna uh, talk a little bit more about it here in just a minute but now, through his time with his therapist, which ended shortly after the play begun, Tony swore that he would not pay attention to reviewers for this production. In fact, for a character as deeply researched and rehearsed as this was, Tony would always suggest that a reviewer who only sees the play for a performance and writes 700 words in a paper the next day hasn't fully lived the character or the experience as deeply as the actor has. So thus, to Tony, the actor is the only true reviewer. But I would add that the audience is the reviewer as well. If they can respond to the piece and reinforce the work the actor has given them, then the actor can claim a positive review. <laughs> hey. Right? Yeah. So reviewers are still somewhat a central part of this business. And academics would argue that without the reviewers, we might almost be perverting the art by not being able to hold it to some standards. Well, the reviews were somewhat what Tony predicted. In one review, Tony's athleticism and charisma were praised, but then followed by statements about how the state of theater at the time, as if the audience was almost dependent on gimmicks. So here's this quote from this review. It's so funny. Like Andrew Lloyd Webber's hit musical on roller skates, Starlight Express, this crutch-propelled Richard III leaves one wondering if the English overvalue any production in which performers use gymnastic means of locomotion. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's like how people criticize the modern state of Broadway theater. It's like, if it's a musical, it has to have been a movie at some point. Well, <laughs> right. So obviously, they just need to be jumping around for anybody to like it. <laughs> But even these reviews did not stop Tony's image from being on the front page of papers for the next several months as performances of Richard III sold out for months even after the production was transferred to the Barbican Theater in 1985. Here's a better review from the audience's perspective. The most arresting moment was in the opening soliloquy, which you just watched a little bit of, okay? Mm -hmm. Sure began upstage speaking softly, contemplatively, leaning back on his crutches, which he kept hidden from the audience. So he's start, starting there as though he's standing up straight looking at them and says, now is the winter of our discontent, etc., etc." But upon reaching line 14, but I that am not shaped for sport of tricks, he sprang forward using the crutches to catapult into a somersault, landing downstage and standing in profile to the audience, the blackest widowmaker ever. Wow. So, right? Like, he just showed you, bam, I'm more mobile than anybody, and look at my big fat lump. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Question my strength. I dare you. Please, please. <laughs> Tony won the Laurence Olivier Award for playing Richard III in 1985. As he should. Woo! Tony was knighted in 2000 
And once mm-hmm. civil partnerships were made legal in the UK, Tony was able to marry his partner, Gregory Doran. Tony's physical dedication to his roles became the stuff of legend. And in the wake of Tony's death, longtime New York Times critic Ben Brantley wrote a special column titled, No Matter the Role, Anthony Schur Made Soaring Seem Possible, in which he had this to say. To watch Anthony Schur on stage was an uncommonly visceral experience. Schur made you feel his performances on a level few other actors achieve. I'm not talking about emotional reaction here, or not only that. The concentration and physiological specificity with which he embodied characters made you tense up in anatomical empathy. After attending a Schur performance, I would often throb with the ache that follows a rigorous run on rough terrain. I was often tempted to check my body for bruises. Oh my goodness. And that's that's the story of the bottled spider. Can you imagine? I mean, (laughs) as somebody, I mean, you and I both perform on stage. I mean, Mm -hmm. just that's like what you strive for. Right? right, just to have right. that impact, that that lasting impact mm-hmm. on people, and man, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that is really. I cool. mean, it's the stuff of legend. Like people talk yeah. about Tony's Richard to this day. Like you know, he's that's one of those things where somebody they didn't. Yeah, I'm going to shame him, Daniel Day Lewis. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. How, <laughs> how like they need to envelop themselves so much into a role that look the man retired from acting at what he's maybe in his late 50s mm-hmm. Ian McKellen has been doing this since he is like 15 and he's 81 and he's not stopping nope and it has nothing to do with I I didn't put myself into it enough oh he puts himself into it yeah but Tony sure acted until he died I mean I just don't get it. I don't, the method to me is so strange when people feel they have to like change who they are. And here, here's my test uh, for anybody who, who can get this. You know, it's on a lot of streaming platforms, but um, I talk about Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. I think it's a brilliant movie. Interesting rendition of Natty Bumpo. Sure. But he spent months in the backwoods of New England, learning how to be a tracker, right? Learn, learning how to fire a black powder rifle, learning how to hunt animals that way, learning like which side of the mo- rock the moss grows on at different times of the seasons. There's a scene where he has rescued his love from an attack by uh, another tribe on, you know, some uh, British soldiers, and they stow away in a, in a, underneath a waterfall. And uh, the the girl's father had been murdered by, you know, uh, the bad guy. So the girl had not seen that. And she asked Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Mm -hmm. did you see my father? And he says, from a distance. And he grabs her arm and moves her away from the rest of the group. And he realizes she needs to cry now. She needs to realize that her father's dead and everything. So he just takes her aside and holds her. And you see her face over his shoulder just the slow realization that, oh my God, my father is dead. And not only is he dead, he was killed in that attack, which was gruesome and brutal. And I can't even imagine the way he died. In that scene, she gave me much more emotional connection than a guy who spent all that time in the woods figuring out, you know, if I walk in the stream, I I don't leave footprints. (laughs) Good on you. You did that research and you understand that. But I'm not connected at all. But 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 what did she have to do? Did she have to go have her father killed in order to understand right. that? No. No, she can just do it. She showed up on set that day and did it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know what Madeline did. Well, and, and 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 you and I've talked about this before where we talk about like watching people um be it local theater, be it big stage, doesn't matter, where you watch a performance and you're like, I cannot connect with this character. This mm-hmm. portrayal from this actor is such, it's either, I think I've used the term flat, very flat, no energy. There's no connection. There's no, I'm not vibing with it at all. There's right. nothing here. Uh, we've mm-hmm. had that, we had that conversation before we wrapped on Rocky Horror. You and I were oh, talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't care how much research you put into it. 
Research mm -hmm. is, is fine. But if you can't translate that onto the stage or onto the screen and give mm -hmm. me something, give the, the viewers something like, like, like what sure did with, 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 with Richard here, it's, it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't right. matter. And right. like, and then, I've watched it, Ian McKellen in so many different parts. And yeah. every time I don't feel like, I mean, yeah, you're like, Oh, it's Ian McKellen. But when he plays Magneto, Oh God, that's Magneto. I it's mean, not Ian McKellen. It's not Gandalf no. suddenly playing with metal. No, that's Magneto. That's Magneto. Yeah. yeah. And when you yeah. watch him as Gandalf, that's mm -hmm. Gandalf. I can't yeah. picture Gandalf any other way. Even right. my first introduction to Gandalf, you know, back the old cartoon, doesn't matter. This is Gandalf. Right. And going back to Magneto, I, I've talked about it on this show. Like, you know, when they recast that with Michael Fassbender mm -hmm. and, and Fassbender played, I don't know if he played McKellen's character, but he played that character in those circumstances as Michael Fassbender as a younger man. Who right. Was in, yes. Like he was in his 40s going, these are the circumstances that I have lived through. I have lived through this kind of persecution. And this is how I feel mm -hmm. it needs to be taken care of. And it's fascinating. And, yes. and it's so, it's so stark. And there aren't too many moments of humor in it, but there are some, you know, whereas like McKellen's like does have some moments of humor and lightness and levity, mm -hmm. but there's also the gravity to it. Like, I don't think I'll ever hear anybody more compellingly say the words, this dorky looking helmet is going to keep the real enemies out. Yeah, right? <laughs> dorky looking right, helmet. Right. Uh, yeah. So... I, I, you know, I don't know. I, like it's, oh God, I just, I just wish somebody would have recorded this and maybe they do. And maybe somebody out there can tell me, oh, I've got a recording and I'll zip it to you. But, oh man, I mean, I, I just love that actor who will envelop a character mm -hmm. knowing it's him there, not lose himself in it. And at the end of the day, walk off stage and go, my God, I'm thirsty. Does anybody have some water? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And not, no, you will refer to me as Richard. No, right, no, right, 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 right. Have to. Sometimes it helps. Vigo Mortensen helped him. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, he was able to go off set. And yeah. What a great story. I am so glad I got to share this with you, Patrick. I'm so glad yes, you're available this is today. So great. Yeah, I am too. I, 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 and it's amazing that we were able to make that Hobbit connection or, you know, to my love of Lord of the Rings with, mm -hmm. with Anthony. Um, now I just, I want to read that book now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got it. You can borrow it if you like. I but, will have um, to do that. It's, it's outstanding. It's outstanding. Well, there we go. Patrick, the bottled spider. Thank you so much again. And for well, my thanks listeners. Thanks for having happen, me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll have to do this again sometime. Um, I'm thinking we need to get the whole Rocky cast on here sometime and have. Oh, fun. that'd be fun. Yeah. Oh, that would that be would a be fun, fun panel discussion. <laughs> for my listeners out there, this is Aaron Odom signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities. I'll be back to you in another two weeks and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>